is God in modern America? Pat and our team seek the answer to this question and many more as we navigate life as Christians in America today. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Millennial God Podcast. My name is Pat Samuels, and today we're taking a look at something that I consider to be probably in the top three issues that Christians face in America. But before we get into that, just a quick reminder to hit subscribe, download this episode, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a review. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to stay on top of all our latest episodes. In today's political and social climate, we need to ensure that Christian voices speak up, and if you want to see more Christian values in our society, then make sure to tell your friends about this podcast. All right, I'm actually really excited for today's podcast for two reasons. First, because the topic I'm going to cover is probably one of the most critical issues in our country right now. Uh, But second, because it's actually the first episode that I'm doing because of a listener request. So I do have a long list of episodes in the queue right now, but if there's ever something in particular that you would like me to look into or discuss or bring a, a guest on about, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All right, like I said, today I want to tackle one of the most significant issues that Christians face in America today, and that is the concept of identity. And I really want to dig into sort of the difference between Uh, what society says your identity is, and what the Bible says your identity is. So let's start out with the question, what do we mean by the word identity? Well, really, all identity refers to is sort of like a person's defining characteristics. Uh, In in other words, what is at the root of that person's existence? But I do want to differentiate between the concept of identity and just characteristics. So Uh, Identity is the thing that defines your existence, but characteristics are just sort of features that you have. Now, we're all born with a variety of natural characteristics, right? We're born as male or female with different skin and hair colors uh, to families in different financial situations. We all have different strengths and weaknesses, and all of this is completely true. And quite frankly, that's what makes the world an awesome place, right? It's it's great that we are also different because uh, then we have unique ideas and beliefs and opinions, and that allows for discussion, learning new things from new people. And there certainly isn't anything wrong in understanding that we are all born with certain characteristics because it's quite simply just a fact. Now, when we begin to extrapolate that out to sort of a broader society at large, we generally use these characteristics to group people together in order to study and understand trends. So Uh, For example, we could study the trends of how certain groups of people vote or uh, who they spend their time with or how they spend their money or or really any number of things. And again, I don't really think that there's anything wrong with this because uh, it can sometimes give us an idea uh, to the root causes of these trends. But again, both at the individual level and sort of at a broader societal level, the characteristics that we use to group people together don't define them. They simply describe them. Uh, And that's an important difference to understand, the difference between definition and description. We can always describe someone by their characteristics, but we should never define someone by their characteristics. And people often make this mistake with skin color, and I don't really know why, because there's no difference between something like skin color and something like hair color. I mean, we don't have blonde pride month or organizations that only blondes are allowed to join. Uh, But again, that's because people have made the mistake of confusing description with definition. And that's exactly what's happening right now in American culture and politics. Across our society right now, we're starting to see a sort of collective acceptance 
and defining people by their characteristics rather than by their individual identity. And this collective mischaracterization is going to absolutely, honestly, cripple our nation. It, it will, 100%. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because now, rather than looking at the actions of a single individual and saying, well, he or she made a good or bad decision, instead, by defining people by their characteristics, we'll start to see a shift toward believing that individuals did something solely because of their race or gender or hair color or you know any other meaningless characteristic. Now, what happens when the people in our society believe that a person can be defined and assessed simply based on their characteristics? Well, uh, we start to see something called identity politics develop. And essentially, identity politics is where politicians or groups of people weaponize specific characteristics about you in order to dictate how you ought to act based on your identity group. Really, what they're trying to do is force an ideological belief on certain people or certain groups of people based on sort of non-ideological factors. They'll tell you that you have to believe in things like abortion or redistributive economic policies or public health care simply because of your skin color or uh, your gender or your sexual attraction or some other characteristic. Simply because you might be a minority in the United States, people will tell you that you must believe in some sort of ideological belief system. Now, within sort of the broader notion of identity politics, there are a couple of different driving theories about the relationship of identity groups and political power in the United States. And the first one that I'll cover is intersectionality. So the Wikipedia definition for intersectionality is, quote, the interconnected nature of social categories, social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Well, that clears it right up, doesn't it? Uh, look, what really is, inter intersectionality really is a form of identity politics in which the value of your opinion depends on how many victim groups you belong to. So based on the beliefs of those who support intersectionality, White males aren't oppressed in the United States and therefore do not have a victim status, and their opinion has the least value. But the more characteristics that you possess uh, that have been historically victimized in some way, the greater your opinion becomes. So uh, if a straight white male, uh, like I said, has the least valuable opinion, then a gay, transgender, black American's opinion is much more valuable because those characteristics have received some form of oppression during American history. Well, not only is this narrative false and counter to biblical theology, but it's also incredibly demeaning and, and quite frankly to me, actually serves to diminish inherent human value. In our society, it has also had a gravely serious consequence. Again, the theory of intersectionality is inherently counter to human value, but uh, it has also done something nearly as bad, if not worse, and that is to create a narrative and send a message to young minorities, to minority communities, to people struggling with their genetic identity, and to people struggling with homosexuality, that no matter what they accomplish in life, two things must be true. First, that they will live their entire lives in oppression, uh, no matter what, and second, that the reason they were able to accomplish something is because their racial or ethnic or gender identity facilitated it. So based on the theory of intersectionality, anyone other than a straight white male will live as a victim every single day of their lives. Every single day. 
And especially among minority youth, this is really just perpetuates a dangerous mindset that you don't have control over your environment. If over and over again, we tell our kids and our communities that they're destined for failure or that they'll never succeed because the system is rigged against them, how do you think they're going to respond? So if identity isn't really rooted in intersectionality, why does intersectionality even exist? Well, it really all boils down to power. Political parties and activist groups believe that if they're able to create alliances between these victim groups, that eventually the network will grow so large that they'll be able to dominate the political, social, and cultural domains. And clearly, uh, in some places, it's actually working quite well because it makes some people feel as though they are sort of rising up for this righteous cause in which they're fighting against oppression and freeing their fellow man from the tyranny of things like patriarchy, right? Uh, but unfortunately, what most people who align with these victim groups don't realize uh, is that they are, are really just pawns in sort of a, a much larger political power struggle. And it really all, all goes back to that core theory of identity politics. And for many of my left-leaning friends out there, I'm um, just forewarning you, I'm seeing the writing on the wall that these alliances will crumble because right now, politicians in America are trying to piece together alliances between people who don't really have the same fundamental beliefs. For example, based on intersectionality, black Americans and homosexual Americans should ally together because they are both oppressed by the evil straight, straight white male. Or Hispanic Americans should ally together with pro-choice feminist movements because, again, both of those identity groups are oppressed, at least by, you know, this theory, by the straight white males. And so you see the, the problem with that is that you're trying to force these ideological beliefs on people based on non-ideological factors. You're trying to, again, define them by their characteristics instead of their actual identity. And as it turns out, the black American community isn't particularly supportive of homosexuality. And Hispanic Americans across the country have this really strong sense of family pride and aren't supportive of that pro-abortion agenda. But people who believe in intersectional ideology simply fail to recognize that humans aren't actually defined by their victim class. And ideologies never match up solely based on physical characteristics, nor should they, right? Imagine how boring life would be if you just knew everything about a person by simply looking at the color of their skin or their gender or some other physical attribute. And sort of as a side note here, this is actually why I think we're seeing an increase in minority populations begin, beginning to move toward more conservative political beliefs. Because even though there's a false narrative that because you're an American minority, you must believe certain things, people are sim simply starting to look at that and recognize that their ideological beliefs aren't limited by their skin color or gender or anything else. And, and look, for those of you who, who don't know, uh, I majored in political science in college, and one of the most fundamental beliefs uh, that we were taught in politics is that you must create this us-versus-them type environment where you pit people against one another so that your particular political agenda can gain power and force its will on the people. Uh, but ultimately, intersectionality is, is just that. It's another political theory that tries to force Americans into this us-versus-them fight so that we can grow more divided as a nation and politicians are able to grab more power from it. And I do want to clarify that both sides do this. Both sides of the aisle, the left and the right, they both use some semblance of identity politics to create a false divide in the country. The right likes to use things like the Second Amendment and abortion as ways to motivate their base against the left, just like the left uses gender and racial identity to convince their followers that they're all being oppressed by the right. But ultimately, like I said before, 
your political, ideological, cultural, and religious beliefs simply aren't limited by the color of your skin or your gender or the amount of money you have or any other physical characteristic. All right, now within the broader theory of intersectionality lies sort of another common theory that you may have heard of in American culture today, and that is critical race theory. But before I describe the theory, I want to take a moment and give you the definition of a racist. So a racist is defined in the dictionary as a person who believes that one race is inherently superior or inferior to another. So just keep that definition in the back of your mind as I sort of go through critical race theory. So critical race theory was originally developed as an understanding within the sort of the, the legal framework in America as a way to solve racial inequality. But unfortunately, it actually exacerbates racial inequality and divisions in the country. Uh, CRT, that's what's commonly called critical race theory, CRT, is essentially the belief that America is fundament fundamentally a racist country and that all of its political, legal, and cultural institutions are designed to maintain white supremacy. Essentially, every relationship between people or between people and institutions is a race-based struggle for power. And again, this goes back to the concept that you cannot and should not be judged based on your individual actions or individual beliefs, but instead that you are just a piece of a larger identity group or a victim group, and that you must believe certain principles because you belong to that identity group. Uh, but that also explains why, at least according to the critical race theory, uh, minorities should have lower standards in order to accomplish uh, as much as some of their racial counterparts. Uh, because of CRT, institutions are already stacked up against minorities, or at least based on CRT, institutions are already stacked against minorities, and therefore the bar must be lowered in order to create equality. Uh, so we see this you know, throughout things like uh, provisions to help minorities get into college or uh, provisions to make sure that uh, there's sort of an, an outweighted or an overweighted value on being a, a minority in, inside of a certain organization or inside of a business or inside of a college or anything like that. That's where we, we sort of gain, th this originally came from, it was this critical race theory. Um, but that's really both unnecessary and quite frankly insulting because people from minority racial groups are every bit as capable as people from majority racial groups. So to believe that someone would be less successful in a free society simply based on the fact that there are less people with the color of their skin in that country than another racial group is pretty asinine, quite frankly. And it's also incredibly easy to disprove since statistically, uh, the most successful populations in America are actually a variety of racially Asian minorities. Now, of course, if you point this out in American discourse right now, you're sure to be labeled as a racist, but if we go back to the actual definition of a racist, believers of uh, critical race theory are propagators of real visceral racism as they literally claim that American minorities are less capable of accomplishing things in America than their racial counterparts. So right now, identity politics, intersectionality, and critical race theory are the predominant theories for defining identity in American society, but as it turns out, the swaying popular understanding of identity right now doesn't quite match God's definition of our identity. So as Christians, what is our identity meant to be? How should we look at identity? And, and really, what, what are we supposed to believe about our identity and the identity of others? Well, when you decide to follow Jesus, one of the first steps should be getting baptized by whoever taught you about Jesus. 
And while baptism is partially about demonstrating your faith, it's really meant to symbolize this new birth. Uh, you were born into this world by flesh, and therefore your identity was rooted in flesh. So at birth, you were either male or female, black or white, Jew or Gentile. But once you become a Christian, you are reborn with the Spirit of God, which we usually call the Holy Spirit. And now you have this new identity in Christ. You are a completely new and different person. And we see this throughout the New Testament. So I'll go through some of the key verses on this topic. First, let's go to John 3. So in John 3, there's a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a Jewish, Jewish religious scholar. And he came to Jesus, and in verse 2 he said, quote, We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, just like Nicodemus, if you don't know anything about Christianity or baptism, the notion of being born again probably sounds pretty weird. And so Nicodemus responds saying, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the, enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Okay, so obviously you still have all the physical characteristics that God originally made you with, but the difference now after baptism is that uh, you're born again through that baptism. You have a new identity with God in your heart through the Holy Spirit. So once we're baptized and reborn of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean about our identity? Well, Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 28 give us a pretty good idea of what we should believe about our identity after baptism. It says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So not only do these verses point out that we're now sons of God and therefore no longer sons or daughters of our worldly par parents, but it also shows us our true identity. Rather than being black or white or male or female or anything else, we're defined by our unity in Jesus. All Christians are reborn with a new spirit, one from God, and that spirit is our new identity. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the writer says, Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So he's saying that the old self, that worldly self, that your previous identity that you were born with, that the world gave to you, has died. It has passed away. Once you become a Christian, once you're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have a new identity in Christ. So... Society is clearly wrong when it comes to how we define our identity. Really, it comes down to whether someone is or is not reborn through baptism and a new spirit. But there is one other problem that I want to point out with identity politics and intersectionality as well. And that is that intersectionality says that you are not an individual with your own set of morals and actions, but instead that you're a member of a group whose collective actions and sense of ideals will be judged by the greater society at large. Well, this is clearly not biblical, because as Christians, we believe that we will each be judged by our own individual actions, but it also elevates the role of the majority in society. Essentially, 
because intersectionality defines morality and actions based on that of an identity group, they elevate their collective understanding of morality over that of God's, uh, thus making the majority coalition the deciders of right and wrong, the judges of mankind, and ultimately the determiners of truth and righteousness in the country. Not only is this you know, wildly prideful, uh, but it's also absolutely a slap in the face to God who created both morality and truth. This is also obviously bad from a societal level because now you as an individual can be held accountable for something that you, quite frankly, possess no responsibility for. Essentially, this is the equivalent of saying something like, because Christians conducted the Crusades long ago, now all Christians are also responsible for the results of the Crusades, even if you live now and had no responsibility for the Crusades. But in America, believers in intersectionality tend to focus more on race and gender uh, because they're just easy targets in our country right now. So who defines right and wrong? Who defines righteousness and justice? And who defines identity? Well, without a supreme supernatural authority to sort of establish right and wrong, all morality becomes relative, and therefore morality itself cannot exist without the existence of God. Uh, the same is true with identity. Without God, all identity is relative to sort of the sways of culture and the, the beliefs of the common culture, the majority that I mentioned before. Well, right now, portions of America are trying to alter what is and is not moral by assigning morality to the status of victimization through uh, this theory of intersectionality. And for far too long, Christians have sat back and just allowed these discussions to continue because we collectively believe in the importance of avoiding confrontation. But that's not really the standard that Jesus set for us while he was on earth. If nothing else, Jesus sought to speak truth to everyone that he encountered, and we should be no different. Uh, I'm not urging you to be mean or to be hateful or to aggressively force your opinions on people. That is, that is not what I'm advocating for here. But as Christians, our role in society is to speak the truth of God to everyone that we meet, whether they agree with it or not. Uh, the time of passive religiosity is over, and the time for truthful discipleship has arrived. So if you're a Christian in America today, and you feel like society is telling you that you must act or think in a certain way, if you feel like everyone on social media and in the news and politicians are telling you what to think or believe solely because of your skin color or your gender or your education level or anything else, please, please know that society is trying to redefine you not as a Christian, but as either oppressor or oppressed based on characteristics that you have no control over. But only in Christ, we're all set free. So in your daily lives, at work, or with friends, or online, don't be afraid to stand up for what is true, because your identity comes from Christ, not from the world. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Millennial God Podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe, and if you liked what you heard, give us a shout-out on social media or leave a review. We are available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you want to support this podcast and keep us on the air, click on the link in the show description to find out how. And if you ever ever have any questions or want to reach out, you can contact us at millennialgodpodcast at protonmail.com. That's millennialgodpodcast at protonmail.com. God bless you.